Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard Leduc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're going to conclude the three parts podcast around Joseph Smith, both the, the history and context of him deciding to run for president, and now we're going to start getting into some of the beliefs and parts of his platform, um, kind of where he's at. We, we last left with uh, his letter back to John C. Calhoun, and, uh, and I think we're going to pick up here with, with Henry Clay. Well, and, and you know, at this point, um, we're basically doing the Hobbit series of Lord of the Rings, right? This, this was originally one movie. It was supposed to be one movie. It was easily could have been done one movie, three movies. I will say, so, so there is a little <laughs> bit, you know, behind the scenes on this. It was supposed to be just one podcast, and... And we, we've kind of found a vein here, something that you're very, uh, that you are passionate angry. about, <laughs> angry about, <laughs> passionate about. And so uh, this happens sometimes where we start with a particular topic. Ah, we could do, you know, maybe, you know, we'll do a couple of different things here. And then we, we find something and, and just kind of So go. part of the problem of not really having a script <laughs> and not doing a table read and not doing any editing or having any actual podcasting skills is that we just kind of pick a topic and then I start talking about it and 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 then we end up talking about it more. So you're going to need to exercise your own agency at this point to not listen to you're like I don't want to listen to a third of Joseph Smith's presidential plot cuz I'm apparently not able to stop myself. I will say one of the things though that we did do is we promised what we're going to do in part 3. Two parts I noticed ago. that I was actually about to bring up the fact that we didn't even decide before we started that this is part three and it's the final part, but Richard decided for me. You might have noticed that. He's like, our third and final part. I feel like he was telling that to me the same way that he would tell his kids that's your last cookie. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if this goes six hours, it goes six hours. Okay, but, well, okay. that's good to know. This is part three. Also six hours long. So it's still downloading on your phone as we talk. So yeah, I wanted to cover a little bit of, again, I'm not going to cover the, the, the letter to John C. Calhoun is even longer. If you want to read it, go to josephsmithpapers.org. You can type in, you know, uh, 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 sorry, the letter to Henry Clay is even longer than the one to John C. Calhoun. You can type in Henry Clay and, and find this, this letter that he writes back. It's published uh, in the Times and Se- uh, Seasons, or the, or the Nauvoo Neighbor, actually, the church newspaper, the other church newspaper there in Nauvoo. And it it is quite the reversal from Joseph saying that he planned to vote for Henry Clay. Henry Clay's platitudes notwithstanding about how he really just wished that people would treat Mormons well um, Joseph was not willing to try to build on common beliefs there. His response is, is, is angry. And it's angry because we're talking about real lives of real people. And by the way, by the time Clay is writing him back, 
there is already further threats of violence against Latter-day Saints in Illinois. So this is not theoretical. The reality is his people are living under this existential threat of continued violence while they're trying to get redress from previous violence that had already happened that had never been meted out. Henry Clay, of course, you know, says, oh, you know, I feel really bad about what happened, but I couldn't pledge myself to, if I'm ever carried into that high office, all that, you know, all the platitudes you can come up with. So I'm not going to read all of Joseph's response, but I'm going to read part of it where he kind of, he grabs a hold of this um, idea, um, you know, saying that, you know, you're not willing to, uh, uh, you're not willing to do what's right. I mean, Henry Clay, your whole thing is that you're going to do what's right. Here's a portion of where Joseph is waxing pretty angry later in the letter. Oh, man. When such a great dilemma of the globe, such a tremendous convulsion of kingdoms shakes the earth from center to circumference, when castles, prisons, houses, and cells raise a cry to God against the cruelty of man, when the mourning of the fatherless and the widow causes anguish in heaven, when the poor among all nations cry day and night for bread and shelter, from heat and from storm, when the degraded black slave holds up his manacled hands to the great statesman of the United States and sings, O liberty, where are thy charms that sages have told me were so sweet? And when 15,000 free citizens of the high-blooded Republic of North America are robbed and driven from one state to another without redress or redemption, it is not only time for a candidate for the presidency to pledge himself to execute judgment and justice in righteousness, law or no law, but it is his bounded duty as a man for the honor of a disgraced country and for the honor, the salvation of a once virtuous people to call for a union of all honest men and appease the wrath of God by acts of wisdom, holiness, and virtue. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Perhaps you may think that I go too far with my strictures and innuendos because of your concluding paragraph. You say, it is not inconsistent with your declarations to say that you have viewed with a lively interest the progress of the Latter-day Saints and that you have sympathized in their sufferings under injustice as it appeared to you, what has been afflicted upon them, and that you think, that's emphasized, in common with all other religious communities, they ought to enjoy the security and protection of the Constitution and law. So he's quoting back to Henry Clay what Henry Clay had said. If words were not wind, Joseph responds, and imagination not vapor, such views with a lively interest might coax out a few Mormon votes. Such sympathy for their sufferings under injustice might heal some of the sick. Yet in lingering amongst them, raise among some of the dead and recover some of their property from Missouri. And finally, if it was not a phantom, we might in common with other religious communities, you think, quote, enjoy the security and protection of the Constitution and laws. But during 10 years, while the Latter-day Saints have bled, been robbed, driven from their own lands, paid oceans of money into the treasury to pay for your renowned self and others for legislating and dealing out equal rights and privileges to those in common with all other religious communities, they have waited and expected in vain. 
If you had possessed any patriotism, if it has been veiled by your popularity for fear that the saints would fall in love with its charms, blind charity and dumb justice never do much towards alleviating the wants of the needy. But straws show which way the wind blows. It is currently rumored that your dernier resort for the Latter-day Saints is to immigrate to Oregon or California. Such cruel humanity, such noble injustice, such honorable cowardice, such foolish wisdom, such vicious virtue could only emanate from clay. After the saints have been plundered of three or four million of land and property by the people and powers of the sovereign state of Missouri, after they have sought for redress and redemption from the county court to Congress, been denied through religious prejudice and sacerdotal dignity, after they have builded a city and two temples at an immense expense of labor and treasure, after they have increased from hundreds to hundreds of thousands, after they have sent missionaries to the various nations of the earth to gather Israel according to the predictions of the holy prophets since the world began, that great plenipotentiary, that renowned secretary of state, the ignoble duelist, the gambling senator, the Whig candidate for presidency, Henry Clay, the wise Kentucky lawyer advises the Latter-day Saints to go to Oregon and obtain justice and set up a government of their own. Ye crowned heads among all the nations, is not Mr. Clay a wise man and very patriotic? Why, great God, to transport 200,000 people through a vast prairie over Rocky Mountains to Oregon, a distance of nearly 2,000 miles, would cost more than four millions. Or should they go by Cape Horn and ships to California? The cost would be more than 20 millions. And all this to save the United States from inheriting the disgrace of Missouri, from murdering and robbing the saints with impunity. Benton and Van Buren, who make no secret to say that if they get into power, they will carry out Boggs' exterminating plan to rid the country of the Latter-day Saints, are little nipperkins of milk. That's a little little cup of milk compared to Henry Clay's great aqua fortis jars, which is poison. Why, Clay is a real giant in humanity. Send the Mormons to Oregon and free Missouri from debt and disgrace. Ah, sir, let this doctrine go to and fro throughout the whole earth that we, as Van Buren said, know your cause is just, but the United States government can do nothing for you because it has no power. You must go to Oregon and get justice from the Indians. I mourn for the depravity of the world. I despise the hypocrisy of Christendom. I hate the imbecility of American statesmen. I detest the shrinkage of candidates for office from pledges and responsibility. I long for a day of righteousness when he whose right it is to reign shall judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And I pray God who hath given our fathers a promise of a perfect government in the last days to purify the hearts of the people and hasten that welcome day with the highest consideration for virtue and unadulterated freedom, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, Joseph Smith. Wow, that's uh, 
it, it, you, you're right. It, that comes across just very personal. He's really let down by Henry Clay here. Yeah, I think he went, he goes from the highest of highs of of believing in Henry Clay. I finally have a I finally have a champion to to the the really personal rendering of this, and you can see that. I mean, yeah, I get it on paper. On paper, the idea, oh, the, the Mormons sound like they might be getting ready to leave the country. Well, that, that'd work out the best for all of us, really, if we didn't have to deal with them. Yeah, on paper, that sounds great. And as Joseph presents, how utterly cruel, cowardly, and wicked could you possibly be to be excited for the prospect, not of redeeming the property that's stolen from them, but of them leaving entirely so you don't have to worry about them anymore. Yeah, there, there really isn't a more cowardly thing. And in fact, it's not just Clay, it's other major American statesmen who, as Joseph puts out feelers that they might leave the country, really encourage him to do it. Stephen Douglas is another uh, a leader in the Senate that's going to say, oh yes, this is a pretty good plan, you know. Um, and in fact... James Polk is totally in favor of it until the war breaks out with Mexico because suddenly all of these Latter-day Saints might be used by Mexico as a, as, as a problem, as a, a force uh, to help prevent the United States war against Mexico. But Polk is going to be more than fine with the Latter-day Saints leaving. It's, it's a zero loss for him. Anywhere the Latter-day Saints go out in the West, whether they go to Oregon, if they go to Oregon, which is jointly occupied by the British and the United States, well then, that bolsters the American claim in Oregon in perhaps the most hypocritical of ways possible. The Mormons are being forced from the United States because the government refuses to recognize their rights as citizens. Yet, if they happen to move into contested lands among the British or into sovereign Mexico, the fact that they are nominally American citizens, those citizens who have no rights, bolsters the claims of American expansionism to claim those lands as part of their own. Talk about a great hypocrisy. Oh, why did you move here? Because the nation drove us out and threatened to kill us. Well, luckily you're there now. Now we know we have more Americans in Oregon. I mean, that 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 is is seen as this giant hypocrisy. And as Joseph rightly points out, because you're too cowardly to go on record and say what happened in Missouri is wrong. So, you know, thank you for all your wonderful pledges of, of friendship. That's great. But you're also a coward. So, as a, a result of this, Joseph is going to make two of his own uh, two of his own conclusions. The first, uh, you know, I've referenced before and reference again, is that ultimately the Latter Day Saints are going to have to leave the United States. The only way that you're actually going to be able to mitigate the persecution of Latter Day Saints is going to be to remove them from the situation. While he doesn't agree with Clay that that's what the government should do, I think Joseph is coming to the conclusion that, that that's the only thing that will actually protect his people. We've tried in New York, we've tried in Ohio, we've tried in Missouri, and we've tried in Illinois. 
We've tried uh, in in places where we tried to not leave as big an impact on the society. We've tried in places where we tried to build up a city in Illinois and and make it an economic powerhouse to contribute to the state. We've tried and we can't do it because the reality is in 19th century American democracy, it would always be more advantageous for a politician to hate and persecute Mormons than it would be to back them because Mormons are universally hated. So whether you're a Whig or a Democrat, whether you're independent of any party, the way to win elections isn't to say, hey, let's stop persecuting this minority group. And I think that realization has fully dawned on Joseph. It's something that's coming across him slowly. Look, Joseph's a pretty patriotic American. I mean, he is raised with, you know, tales of his grandfather's fighting in the Revolutionary War. I mean, that... That's what he sees himself as. And as the actual process of American democracy plays out before him, he he has to come to terms with something that I think is very difficult. And that is his whole life he was taught that America is this land of great freedom and justice and equality and all he's experienced at the hands of so-called leaders of that government is neglect and persecution and bigotry and hatred. It really creates a dichotomy. I mean, it, it, you can hopefully empathize with Joseph in that regard, that what he sees as the ideal of the United States, what it's supposed to be, and what it actually is are not playing out for him. He will ask uh, W.W. Phelps to help draft for him his own presidential declaration. So the first is that we're going to have to leave the country, and he, and he sends scouts out to go find out a place. We're going we're gonna to have to leave. While we're preparing to leave, in the, in the short term, he declares himself a candidate for president and is going to adopt a very radical, non-conciliatory presidential platform. His platform is not a way to win friends and influence people. Let's put it that way. He is going to adopt a platform that is stark in its claims. Um, and and I, I did talk about this a little bit before when we talked about the the martyrdom. But you know, it, maybe you skip that one, or maybe you're you know you want a little bit of a refresher. But the document is called. General Smith's views of the powers and policy of the government of the United States. He's going to have, you know, he's going to essentially go through various iterations of this policy with Phelps. Phelps will draft it. He'll say, change this or draft it again, you know, until he get it. And they'll eventually publish it. The most stark thing that the, the, the presidential statement, this platform that he has, that it opens up with is something that, to us, doesn't seem as stark, and to us seems, well, of course. And that is his opening salvo against, against slavery in the United States. We all look back on the past and say, well, if I lived back then, I would be absolutely opposed to slavery. Yes, if you got in your time machine and got it up to 88 miles an hour with all of your current light and knowledge, with your understanding of the despicable nature of human 
servitude and the the bigotry and racism in in income of course if you went back in time you would not only be an abolitionist but you would be the most fervent abolitionist but that's not the world that people live in in the 1840s the reality is most americans whether we want to admit it or not are pretty ambivalent towards the idea of slavery People who are abolitionists are hated. We talked about this with Elijah Lovejoy and his multiple destroyed presses, right? He's an abolitionist in Illinois. It's not Southerners who are destroying his presses. It's free state Northerners who hate the abolitionist message so much that they're destroying his presses and then they eventually kill him. So, What had happened in American electoral politics up to 1844 was the topic of slavery had become very muted. It was rarely discussed by major presidential party candidates. Sure, there are some firebrands in the House and in the Senate that will bring it up, but they are extreme minorities. Abolition to slavery, opposition to slavery is really chilled by the Andrew Jackson. Again, hard to believe that Andrew Jackson, this, you know, president who was willing to throw whatever power he wanted around, one of the things he did at with that power is he instructed the the US Postal Service. Again, this is through this is just through executive order. This is not because a law has passed. He instructs the US Postal Service to no longer deliver abolitionist anti-slavery tracks to places in uh in the south because that was inciting you know slavery to rebellion to slave rebellion it's it's pretty incredible in congress they adopt what they call the gag rule where they they are not going to read every petition that comes before so Before them, traditionally what would happen is they'd get a petition of their constituents and that petition would then be read before the entire Congress and then laid on the table. But sometimes those petitions made people feel bad because they said things like, there are millions of slaves in this country being brutalized by their owners. And Southerners who were more than willing to maintain that system of servitude were less willing to have their crimes written out in a litany that was read to the Congress. So they actually adopted a rule that if it was an anti-slavery petition or pamphlet, they just wouldn't actually read it anymore so that they wouldn't have any debates on it. They try to go through the 1830s and early 1840s without having debates on slavery in the Congress. To give you an idea of how little an issue it is, In uh, the 1840 election, slavery is not a major topic. Uh, William Henry Harrison tries to run a pretty national campaign on the basis that, you know, he's a war hero. And the biggest issue is whether or not there's a reconstituting of the national bank that Andrew Jackson destroyed and whether or not there should be an increased or decreased national tariff or a tax on imported goods. Slavery is not a part of either of the platforms. Now, it's not to say there aren't Whigs who are very opposed to slavery or in favor of slavery, or Democrats who are very opposed to slavery or in favor of slavery. But 
But in any case, that's not what the election turns on. To give you an idea of how far apart those two political parties are, right? And by that, I mean not at all when it comes to this issue. In 1844, who do the candidates actually end up being? After all the wranglings in in the Democratic uh, uh, Convention, what do you end up with? You end up with Henry Clay, the Whig candidate from uh, Kentucky, who is a plantation owner and a slave owner versus James K. Polk from Tennessee, who is a plantation owner and slave owner. Clearly, the two parties are miles apart on this. Now, in Clay's defense, he was, albeit very slowly, hesitant to the annexation of Texas because it was an annex, it was an expansion of slavery in the United States. But this is not a platform he is running on. Similarly, this is not a platform that Polk is running on. They are not going to run on a platform of talking about slavery in any way in the 1840s. People who do that are considered pariahs to society. They're outside of society because they're trying to foment some kind of revolt in society. With that in mind, see, that's the context. All I can offer is context. Joseph Smith's presidential platform opens in an incredibly unique way born in the land of liberty and breathing an air of uh, an air uncorrupted with the sirocco and barbarous climes i feel i ever feel a double anxiety for the happiness of all men both in time and in eternity my cogitations like daniel's have for a long time troubled me When I viewed the condition of men throughout the world, and more especially in this boasted realm, where the Declaration of Independence holds these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But at the same time, some two or three millions of people are held as slaves for life, because the spirit in them is covered with a darker skin than ours. That's his opening statement, is to say the country has forfeited its promise in the Declaration of Independence because it claims that all men are created equal and that same country holds two or three million black slaves. Wow. It's as yeah. it's as stark an opening to a political and and what does it mean? It means that Joseph is going to do what Henry Clay is unwilling to do. So this this is interesting and I've noticed in, in the recording of these three podcasts I have not said wow as much in previous episodes but I it's a catchphrase. Well, yeah. We want to get it, it put it's, on, it's really put on a sweatshirt. But it, it, it's just fascinating to me here. So here's a, a third rail subject, and he's leaning into it for the very reason that he feels that he's not receiving because their fear of what that means politically. And he says he's abandoning what that is. And let's. Joseph Smith is at the very least putting his money where his mouth is. Henry Clay and Richard Mentor Johnson and John C. Calhoun, they they won't make a definitive statement about how wrong it is that the Latter-day Saints had their property stolen from them in Missouri. 
because of the political implications of it. Well, nothing has greater political implications in the United States than referencing slavery at all. I suppose in, I'm about to say in no, fairness. No, that, no, don't defend him. Well, well, I would just, I would just, I would just say though that, uh, I mean, they're seeking. There's a likelihood that they would be elected president. There's a chance, and yep. and Joseph Smith at this point is able to be able to. Freely, yeah, he doesn't expect that he's going to be elected, so he's able to just speak yeah. his mind on the matter. And I think though that Joseph would say, even if I thought I was going to be elected president, I'm still going to speak my mind. No, no question yeah. that it would be wonderful if they did. But the fact that they didn't was an obvious political. I mean, move. again, hard to believe <laughs> that a politician would not be completely forthright about what they actually intend to do as president in order to gain more votes. But you have to look at this world where politicians are willing to obfuscate their true feelings in order to garner more votes. And that's so Joseph is is doing expressly the opposite of that. If you were to go to a political analyst, whatever the K Street is of Washington, D.C., which I'm sure is just a, a canal and a mud flat at that point in 1840, if you were to go to them and say, What is the worst way to try to open my presidential campaign? <laughs> they would say, mentioning slavery at all. And not just mentioning slavery, but coming out as condemnatory as you could possibly be. In that opening statement, he completely alienated every white person in the South. I'm sure if blacks were allowed to read it, they'd be fine with it. Um, And nearly everyone in the North. But he doesn't just, I mean, he goes to the, it's not just the slavery piece, it's that the slavery uh, aspect to our country like like you said about our our founding documents, it it makes those that we've fallen far short it, of that. It so so it's not it's not even all right. So slavery maybe you're apathetic, but your general apathy towards slavery means that our country is forfeited. It means the very fact that you're apathetic towards the condition of slaves means that you do not actually cherish the ideals of the Declaration of Independence that you think you do. So that that makes him lose the other half of everybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, or, I mean, and it allows for, you know, people to criticize Mormonism, and they will in the years going forward, on something that your Latter-day Saint today would say, wait a minute, what? Latter-day Saints today would be stunned if someone would equate their Mormonism with a lack of patriotism. We talked, it was actually funny. We had a podcast that dropped in the weekend of the 4th of July. Yeah. Where you talked about this specifically. And and here, yeah, I can I can understand if I'm reading this statement, I'm it's it's much easier for me to not like the Mormons. So as a Latter-day Saint, you're saying that now you're not liking it. <laughs> no, I'm saying oh, 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 if okay, I'm in the well. position of, because if, if we look at if we look at these people, and let's say I'm even apathetic toward the Latter-day Saints, and then they're saying, but the fact that, that slavery exists and you're not actively fighting against it, you have abandoned these yep. things, these ideals that you claim yep. to believe. You, you have abandoned the, the Declaration of Independence. But that is, that is a stunning opening. And he's going to go on to, to bring into others not just slavery. He's going to say, um, 
there are hundreds of our own kindred uh, are, are enslaved for an infraction or a supposed infraction of some overwise statute that have been incarcerated in dungeon glooms or suffer the more the the more moral penitentiary gravitation of mercy in a nutshell, while the duelist, the debauchee, the defrauder of millions, and other criminals take the uppermost rooms at feasts or in the like, or like the bird of passage, find a more congenial climb by flight. So he's not just indicting the nation for slavery. He's indicting it for the fact that we have people still going to debtors' prisons. We have poor people for small infractions that are being imprisoned for years, while people who are in the highest political circles can fight in a duel, that's a vague, a veiled reference towards Henry Clay, and not even go to jail for it? Well, because that's Henry Clay. It's very different. Dueling's illegal. I know, but it is Henry Clay. I mean, that... The elitism of the political class of the United States is the other thing that's also under attack here. And again, Joseph's going to talk pretty poignantly about incarceration as if he himself were held in a horrible incarceration without actual standing for that incarceration. So he's speaking from experience. The wisdom, he goes on, which ought to characterize the freest, wisest, and most noble nation of the 19th century. So, so that's what Americans want to think of themselves. We are the best. We are the brightest. We are the freest. We are the most, right? And Joseph's saying, you say the United States is the greatest of all nations that's ever existed. The wisdom that ought to characterize it should, like the sun in his meridian splendor, warm every object beneath its rays. And the main efforts of her officers, who are nothing more or less than servants of the people, ought to be directed to ameliorate the condition of all, black or white, bond or free. For the best of books says, God hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth. He's, he is doubling down and saying that, if this, the, the, the purpose of political officers in this nation is to alleviate suffering. That's the purpose of a politician, is to make suffering less. And um, again, speaking to the fact that it's black and white. Now, again, not only do they have slavery in their society, they have an incredibly stratified society. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not making some kind of indictment that the United States is somehow a more stratified society than everywhere else on earth at the time. No, in the 19th century, essentially nearly every nation has an incredibly stratified class-based society. That, that, that is, that's everywhere. But it's also in the United States too right? Where someone is considered less than someone else because of their amount of money that they have. Again, hard to believe that that'd be the case in America, but, but, but finances does play a large part in whether or not people receive respect. It's not just race. It's also class, various ways of, of oppression. 
Joseph goes on. Our common country presents to all men the same advantages, the same facilities, the same prospects, the same honors, the same rewards, and without hypocrisy. The Constitution, when it says we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America, meant just what it said, without reference to color or condition, ad infinitum. Joseph is is really laying into this. He is not casual in his opposition to slavery. And and I think maybe Joseph feels that not only poignantly because of of how he feels about mankind, but also because the, the, the recognition comes when you are a persecuted minority group. That whatever legalism allows you to be treated with impunity is, is applied other places. So perhaps Joseph sees, obviously, look, black men and women held in slavery in the United States suffered far more than Latter-day Saints ever would or will. Just there, There's not even a comparison in that regard. But perhaps there is a, an opening of the door of such persecution because of the legalized treatment of black men and women in the United States at the time. You've created a class of people that it's legal to treat worse in this blessed land of liberty, right? I think that's part of what Joseph's seeing as his, as the, the hypocrisy. And any country where that's the case, well, it's pretty, I mean, it's fairly subjective in terms of who that is applied to. As long as there is this going on, it can certainly be applied to any group of people. And that, you know, that that leads to this, you know, I mean, the, the famous quotes about, you know, the Holocaust, right? In the sense that, you know, you know, I didn't say anything when they came for this group of people. I didn't say anything when they came for this group of people. I didn't came, and when they came for me, there was no one left to say anything for me, right? I mean, that the reality is the same type of excess. Uh, an abuse of power that allows any particular group to be mistreated, at least theoretically, at least possibly, then exists for it to treat someone else that way. So recently, we've gone through quite a bit uh, as it relates to COVID-19 and the rules and and. Uh, different policies that have come from uh, states and the federal government. And one thing that has stood out to me is some of the language of our modern day apostles as it relates to religious liberty. And I have found it interesting as they have not just stood for the religious liberty of the Latter-day Saints in America and around the world, but of the Hasidic Jews in New Jersey and New York of the evangelical Christians all throughout the country. And it, it's an interesting thing. I think that there's this, you know, this string that attaches to this idea of obviously our beliefs aren't the same as their beliefs, but I stand with them and their ability to worship as they, as they choose. And I will be on the record defending someone different than me 
because otherwise when they come for me, it'll be hypocritical to. Yeah. I think, I think that is uh, something that frankly is is sometimes surprising for, uh, for American Latter-day Saints that, you know, that it's Latter-day Saints who are at the forefront of, of, or the church is at the forefront of welcoming, for instance, uh, Muslim refugees into the United States. That is not a popular position for many people on, on in, in some uh, political backgrounds. But I think that's all part of this idea of, you know, stemming from back to Joseph, but of course back to Jesus, that the whole point of life is not to just mitigate your security problems in life. The point of life is to act the way that Jesus would act. And yeah, maybe that, maybe that Levite who sees the man on the road wounded and passes by on the other side, what he's really afraid of is if I go over and help, how do I know that there's not other criminals that are there waiting to get me? Maybe that's the reason why. I think that's why the story of the Good Samaritan is such an amazing story. Because the people who should have helped him didn't. And the people who he was religiously, socially, and ideologically completely opposed to did. Obviously, look, Latter-day Saints are individuals. We all have different viewpoints all over the place. And I can only really speak to what it is that Joseph is saying and Joseph is feeling. And But I can at least hope that what Joseph has to say here strikes a chord with you. It's the easiest thing in the world to try to push back against and out against other groups that are despised or that are minorities or that are driven out because that's what the the natural tendency is to do. But Latter-day Saints were and sometimes are that same minority. And so... Um, we, we see it here. Joseph's going to go on to say the aspirations and expectations of a virtuous people envisioned, sorry, environed was so wise and so liberal, so deep, so broad, and so high a character of equal rights as it appears in said constitution ought to be treated by those who administer the laws whose administration of the laws are entrusted with as much sanctity and prayers of the saints are treated in heaven that love confidence and union like the sun moon and stars should bear witness forever singing as they shine the hand that made us is divine unity is power and when i reflect on the importance of it to the stability of all governments i'm astounded at the silly moves of persons and parties to foment discord in order to ride into power on the current popular excitement. Nor am I less surprised at the stretches of power or restrictions of right, which too often appear as acts of legislators to pave the way to some favorite political scheme, as destitute of intrinsic merit as a wolf's heart is of the milk of human kindness." And then he quotes a French phrase, all men like wealth and power. He's going to go on to kind of give a history of, of U.S. Uh, political power, which is probably too lengthy for me to read all of it. But he goes through all the various presidents and the great things that they did for the country. Um, and then he's going to come to Martin Van Buren. Um, as you might imagine, Martin Van Buren's not going to 
he's not going to come off as well as George Washington in the comparison. And then, uh, sorry, at the age then of 60 years, our blooming republic began to decline under the withering touch of Martin Van Buren. Disappointed ambition, thirst for power, pride, corruption, party spirit, faction, patronage, prerequisites, fame, tangling alliances, priestcraft, spiritual wickedness, and high places struck hands and revealed oh, and reveled in midnight splendor. Trouble, vexation, perplexity, and contention mingled with hope, fear, and murmuring rumbled through the union and agitated the whole nation as would an earthquake at the center of the earth of the world, having the sea, heaving the sea beyond its bounds and shaking the everlasting hills. So in hopes of better times, while jealousy, hypocritical pretensions and pompous ambition were luxuriating in the ill-gotten spoils of the people, they rose in their majesty like a tornado and swept through the land till William, General William Henry Harrison appeared as a star among the storm clouds of better weather. So you can... Wow. He's... Yeah. Yeah, they, they, no love lost. Van Buren was swept from the land, essentially. He goes on to talk about the John Tyler presidency and how Tyler, you know, has alienated everyone by by being a Democrat, but actually a Whig, but also hated by the Democrats. In fact, they'll call him a, a pseudo Whig Democrat, which is which is exactly what he is. Joseph will say, "No honest man can doubt for a moment." But the, the glory of American liberty is on the wane and that calamity and confusion will sooner or later destroy the peace of the people. Now, when he says no, uh, that no honest man can doubt that, well, I mean, frankly, he would have been almost universally rejected in that thought. But he is the prophet who's already received Doctrine and Covenants section 87. He well knows that American civil war is coming. And so when he points out that American liberty is on the wane, I think he thinks this is the reason why. The very fact that the slavery issue is the reason why he knows God has told him that that's how the civil war is going to start is all the more reason why if you love America, you better not love slavery because it's going to destroy it. He's going to say, um, that speculators will urge a national bank as a savior for credit and comfort. A hireling pseudo priesthood will plausibly push abolition doctrines and doings and human rights into Congress and into every other place where conquest smells of fame and opposition swells to popularity. Democracy, wiggery and clickery will attract their elements and foment divisions among the people and to accomplish fancied schemes and accumulate power while poverty driven to despair, like hunger forcing its way through a wall, will break through the statutes of men to save life and amend the breach in prison glooms. He, he's going to talk about um, this fact that well, let me go on. A still higher grade of what the nobility of nations call great men will daily with all rights in order to smuggle a fortune at one fell swoop, mortgage Texas, possess Oregon, and claim all the unsettled regions of the world for hunting and trapping. And should a humble, honest man, red, black, or white, exhibit a better title 
These gentry have only to clothe the judge with richer ermine and spangle the lawyer's fingers with finer rings to have the judgment of his peers and the honor of his lords as a pattern of honesty, virtue, humanity, while the motto hangs on his nation's escutcheon, every man has his price. So Joseph is alleging at this point that the reason why an honest man red, black, or white is suffering is because of the corruption of political people there that you only have to buy a judge a better ring you only have to get a nicer fur coat for the politician and suddenly he's on the side of the majority again rather than the minority i mean it it is uh it is a scathing indictment let's just say that um um now will people turn uh, o people, people, turn to the Lord and live. And to reform this nation, frustrate the designs of wicked men. So now you start to get to some of the meat of how am I going to fix this? Reduce Congress at least one half. Two senators from a state and two members to a million population will do more business than the army that now occupy the halls of the legislature. So one of the things that Joseph is, he, he thinks there's too many members of the House of Representatives that you don't need that many to represent the people instead of having them represent, you know, every 25,000 or 50,000, however, they do, that to have them, you know, one for every 2 million, much reduced the House of Representatives. I think once you've come to the conclusion that the, the, every politician's corrupt, the more of them that you have, just the more corruption you have. I mean, really, on the other side, someone could say, well, yeah, but then you're consolidating power and then those corrupt people just have more power. But if everyone's corrupt, then you might as well, I guess, have a smaller target. Um, he or, he argues that they should not pay them, uh, uh, um, that, that, well, you should pay them. Pay them $2 plus their, uh, their board per diem, except on Sundays. And that's more than the farmer gets, and he lives honestly. Curtail the offices of government and pay, number and power. For the Philistine lords have shorn our nation of its goodly locks in the lap of Delilah. That's interesting. You have now a, a congressman or senator, at least, you know, maybe a first or second term makes triple the median household income, or actually maybe close to quadruple. Right. And so Joseph's argument is they shouldn't make any more than what an average person makes. Now, of course, on the other side, people would say, well, yeah, but then only rich people who could afford would go into it. I think Joseph's saying that that uh, you should not be making money. Your career should not be serving the people. So this goes more in line with what you said earlier as it relates to virtue, right? Like the idea of mm -hmm. serving isn't one to get ahead. It's, I'm a... It's, it's a sacrifice. That's right. It, it's a it's a sacrifice for the republic in in that traditional sense of virtue. Petition your state legislatures to pardon every convict in their several penitentiaries, blessing them as they go, and saying to them, "In the name of the Lord, go thy way and sin no more." I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that of the multiplicity of presidential uh, campaigns that have been launched in the United States, none of them have argued that all of the convicts in state penitentiaries should be pardoned. What do you think? Yeah, I just did a quick search, uh, 0%. Yeah. Did you even search or you just already knew? I just already knew. Yeah. 
And and by that we mean we haven't looked at all. <laughs> but we already know that of the constituents who you really need backing you in the votes, prisoners is 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 the the one that can't vote. Oh, so it's it's used the exact opposite. And <laughs> in, in, in at least at least in my you know, in my political awareness lifetime, I I've seen the exact opposite, where they're too soft on this or too soft. Yeah. On that. Oh, my opponent's softer. And look, I, I'm not making a, co- a commentary about that, but what I'm saying is how, look, the prison system is incredibly corrupt, and as Joseph learned in Liberty right. and in Richmond, right. in in the 19th century, and so Joseph's response is, we need to start over. We need to start over because there's so much corruption. Um, he says, uh, after that, that, um, advise your legislators when they make laws for larceny, burglary, or any felony to make the penalty applicable to work upon the roads, public works, or any place where a culprit can be taught more wisdom and more virtue and become more enlightened. Rigor and seclusion will never do as much to reform the propensities of man as reason and friendship. That is a very modern approach to criminal justice reform. Yeah, he thinks that it should be education and uh, life skills, work skills, rather than the reforming of the prison. It's funny, these are things that are currently being discussed that, I mean... You'd be surprised how poorly these were received. (laughs) I don't think I would be surprised. Well, it it, it is incredibly poorly. In (laughs) fact, they just make a mockery of it because Joseph Smith will go on to say, we should have a national bank to regulate the currency because that's one of the big debates of the day. But that national bank should have, it should have uh, branches in every state so that it's easier for people to access the credit, right? To which one uh, critical newspaper publication said, Joseph Smith not only wants a national bank back, he wants to free every prisoner in the country. So I can only imagine he would have those prisoners working at the tills of those banks, and we'll see how well that goes, essentially. It's a very, it's quite cheeky response. Um, you can see the political ad running against Oh, yeah, yeah. Joseph Smith <laughs> wants you to believe that he cares about the country, but Joseph Smith wants... Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can, you can hear... It's a dark... It's, it's, well, everything's black and white from that time period, but, but this would also be black and white, even if it were made today, you know. Um, but he's, he's really kind of serving it up to him. This isn't from like a dissertation that he gave in college mainly because he never went to college. Uh, but had he, we'd have that, right? Um, so yeah, that's not a winning, it's not a winning position to say, you know what we really need to focus on? Criminal justice reform. That's not how most people win. Now, look, that does get more play in the 21st century. But go ask your grandparents how often people were running as one of the planks of their platform pardoning prisoners yeah that's the point the 20th century they're not doing this it's not until relatively recently criminal justice reform becomes a major and even then there are very few people saying just let everyone out of jail very few yeah i don't know Uh, yeah they're not as many um he does make exceptions like look not for murderers murder only can claim confinement or death let the penitentiaries be turned into seminaries of learning where intelligence like the angels of heaven would banish such fragments of barbarism. Imprisonment for debt is a meaner practice than the savage tolerates with all his ferocity. 
love conquers all. Joseph argues that if people are arrested for a crime that's not murder. Now, murder, he, you know, he says confinement or death is what that should be. But someone's a burglar. What he's arguing is that, yeah, they should go to a place, but the place they go should teach them a life skill and give them an education so that they will stop needing to be a burglar. That's his plan. So rather than using penitentiaries as methods of punishment, using them as methods of social advancement. Again, probably not going to be on your ballot in a local election soon. Um, And if he hadn't already decided to alienate himself from most other political stripes in the country, he decides to lean in on his plan for slavery. He's not just using words saying slavery's wrong. He's actually going to present a plan for the ending of slavery. Petition also all ye goodly inhabitants of the slave states, your legislators, to abolish slavery by the year 1850. It's 1844. So he's saying in six years, I want slavery gone. That's fairly ambitious. Um, and now, save the abolitionists from reproach and ruin, infamy, and shame. Pray Congress to pay every man a reasonable price for his slaves out of the surplus revenue arising from the sale of public lands, and from the deduction, pay from the uh, from the deduction of the pay of members of Congress because we're cutting their salary. <laughs> so his plan is we're going to pay the members of Congress less, but use that money to purchase slaves and free them. Break off the shackles from the poor black man and hire him to labor like any other human being. For an hour of virtuous liberty on earth is worth the whole eternity of bondage. Joseph's plan is is not strictly speaking abolitionism. Uh, I mean, the abolitionism has a very you know narrow uh, definition in in the field of history. An abolitionist is someone who's advocating for the immediate cessation of slavery. And of course, what's the problem with that for 19th century law? Well, the constitution allows for slavery. So how do you get past the fact that the constitution recognizes property in slaves and yet slavery is utterly immoral? How do you get rid of it? Joseph's plan is, well, why can't the federal government just purchase every slave? If someone is purchased, if you purchase every person's slave, well, then someone can't claim, oh, you're taking my property away from me. No, you, here's your, I just imminent domained your slaves. I have, I have purchased it from you. You haven't had it taken from you. And then as those slaves are purchased, then they are freed. Now, in point of fact, this novel idea is something that, that, uh, Abraham Lincoln will undertake. I'm not saying he undertakes it because of Joseph Smith's platform. But to show you how far in advance it is, in the midst of the American Civil War, Lincoln is still trying to formulate what, how, how slavery can end. And so he, he does this kind of trial run, this kind of idea in Delaware. He, Delaware is, is, a, is a northern, it's the most northern slave state. It has the highest percentage of free blacks in it. In fact, there's, 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 
four times as many free blacks in Delaware at the time as there are enslaved blacks, as more and more slaves have become free over the course of century, uh, the, the half a century following the, the revolution. So slavery is on the wane. It's the most minor part of the Delaware economy. I'm not the most minor, but it's, it's the most minor part of the economy in any slave state. De- slavery has the least impact. And the writing's already on the wall, right? I mean, the Civil War is going on over slavery, and many of the people are saying, that's it, this is why we've got to get rid of slavery. Even in those circumstances, when Lincoln makes that offer to Delaware, says, what if the federal government started to purchase slaves from all of your slave owners so we could free all the slaves in Delaware by paying for them? So they're not being, you're not losing your property. You're being paid for them. And then we'll free them. Even seeing the writing on the wall with slavery, the slave owners in Delaware almost universally reject that offer, which is hilarious because then a year later, all their, there's you know, two years later, all their slaves are going to be freed by a constitutional amendment. Anyway, they're not freed by the Emancipation Proclamation because the Emancipation Proclamation only frees slaves in rebellious territories. It's not until the 13th Amendment that slaves are going to be freed everywhere. So those slave owners could have been paid by the federal government. And then a couple years later, they weren't because the the, the reason is, and and the reason why I'm bringing this up is not only is it cool that Joseph Smith had this thought in advance of, of Lincoln, who's really trying to find a way out of our slavery predicament, but also to demonstrate a little bit of the naivete. While the justification for slave ownership was, well, this is property and it's property that's guaranteed by the constitution. The realities of slave ownership is it is a form of of white supremacy that whites are not willing to give up. The poorest white man in the South who has no property, who is a drunk and an illiterate, who, who is nothing but he's one of those criminals that Joseph would have to free from that penitentiary the scum of the earth of that local town in the South is afforded esteem over the most educated and erudite black slave or black free man. And, and that is that underlining problem. Slavery is not simply an economic system. It's a system of oppression that uses economic uh, coercion for, you know, sure, but it's also a system of class, race-based class, that is that Southerners aren't willing to give up, even when it is apparent that it's about to be taken from them. They won't give it up. And then, unfortunately, after Lincoln's murdered, they'll do everything they can to fight against any reforms that try to bring about inequality, which is why it's 90 years after that that you are dealing with you know, Brown versus the Board of Education and segregation in schools. Not not nine years after the, the Civil War. Ninety. Years, a century is going to pass before you actually get even the first steps towards equality. And I'm not saying that we're there. I'm just saying those are the first steps. Um, Joseph's going to go on to say, to make honor the standard of all men. You've probably heard that. You've probably seen that quote. Make honor the standard of all men with Joseph Smith is the quote. Um, 
that his country will never uh, trust him again. He has forfeited his honor. He's talking. Oh, so make honor the standard of all men. Um, be sure that good is rendered for e- for evil in all cases. So good is rendered for evil. And the whole nation, like a kingdom of kings and priests, will rise up with righteousness and be respected as wise and worthy on the earth and just and holy for heaven by Jehovah, the author of perfection. More economy in the national and state governments would make less taxes among the people. More equality through the cities and towns and country would make less distinction among the people. Again, he wants to reduce this class. You can see that Joseph is, you know, without telling anyone, He's projecting the ideals of Zion into the American system, a place where there's no rich and no free, uh, sorry, sorry, no rich and no, no poor. There's no bond and no, no free. Everyone is equal and everyone loves God and loves their neighbor as themselves. That, that is what he's trying to, to, to push in his platform. Um, he goes on to say, um, that, uh, let's see here more uh, you'd have less distinction among the people and more honesty and familiarity in societies would make less hypocrisy and flattery in all branches of community open frank candid decorum to all men in this boasted land of liberty would beget esteem confidence union and love and the neighbor from any state or from any country of whatever color climb or tongue could rejoice when he put his foot on the sacred soil of freedom and exclaim, the very name of American is fraught with friendship. So it's interesting, though, when, if he were to say that we're to love our fellow men, I don't know that he would get much pushback from other Christians, other groups, other They people. would at least claim that they believe that, yes. They believe that, yes. But he's... He's taking it to the, at least at the time, to the extreme of the imprisoned and the slave to say this applies to all, all men. So it's the, it, it's not the, because when you said, you know, bringing in kind of this idea of Zion, I think people accept the general premise of it, but just not for these people, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that that's what he's saying is removing the strictures on our love that we think we're justified in holding. I mean... Yeah, it's a Southern Baptist minister in South Carolina that's saying, you know, we have got to love our fellow brothers and sisters. We've got to treat people the way Jesus would and then goes home to his slaves that he runs in the fields. Because God ordained that. God created that. Joseph is rejecting the idea that God wants slavery. God wants there to be no classes. God wants there to be nothing but love and no separation or distinction in our love. That's what God wants. And yeah, many Americans have conveniently compartmentalized their faith. Oh, I believe in doing everything I can for the, for, for the poor, unless those poor people are criminals, blacks, or immigrants. Well, th- th- that's different. Sure. For a, you know, a white, a white Christian who's yeah, yeah, I'll help him out. Look, that's better than nothing. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And it's not what Joseph's talking about. The whole point of being Christ-like is saving and loving those that you don't identify with. The least of these. The least, right. That, you know, you know, 
Simon, I have some something that I would say to thee, right? When 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 the the adulteress, I mean the uh, the the prostitute comes in and 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 wets his feet with her tears, and you know Simon the Pharisee, I'm 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 not reading this from the Bible right now, so please forgive everything that I'm not getting right. Says, if this man were a righteous man, he would know the manner of woman who toucheth him. Right. That's what he says to himself. He doesn't say it out loud. He says it to himself. And, and Jesus, knowing his thoughts, because uh, he's Jesus, turns and says, you know, Simon, I have somewhat to say concerning thee. Right. And then he gives that parable of the person who owed a lot and the person who owed very little. And he said, when both had none to give, the master frankly forgave them both. Who think ye among them loved the master most? And Simon very hesitatingly says, I suppose him to whom more was forgiven. And and Jesus says, thou hast judged rightly, right? That, that um, this woman has sinned greatly. And that's why she has so much to receive in forgiveness. That's why her love of Jesus is so great. And, and the reality is we're all sinners. We are all sinners. All of us are at some point going to be begging God to forgive us. There is none, none of us escape that. None of us skate into the celestial kingdom without being on our knees begging God to forgive us for the things that we knew were wrong when we did them. We, we weren't tricked into our sins. We knew them. We embraced them. We waded into them. And we are all like that woman kneeling at the Savior's feet, begging for forgiveness that, that, that he grants us. And I think Joseph extends that out to how you see politics. He doesn't want to see a separation between what he believes and what God expects of him politically. He, he wants them to be the same thing. Um, he's going to uh, um, talk about um, the expansion of the United States. So, so this is something interesting. At the time, there's great discussion about whether or not the United States should expand he says, as to the contiguous territories of the United States, wisdom would direct no tangling in alliance, which is a, a you know phrase from back to Washington. Oregon belongs to the government honorably, and when we had when we've had the red man's consent, he's making this reference to Native Americans. When we've had their consent, so somehow you have to get you have to you, you can't just take Native American land. You need to have them agree to any territorial expansions. Let the union spread from the east to the west sea. If Texas petitions Congress to be adopted among the sons of liberty, give her the right hand of fellowship and refuse not the same friendly grip to Canada and Mexico. And when the right arm of the freeman is stretched out in the character of a Navy for the protection of rights, commerce, and honor, let the iron eyes of power watch from Maine to Mexico and California to Columbia. So he has this idea of expanding this, an American union all across the country, which of course is only a third of the way across at this point or a half. Um, that, um, if you get, um, to the place where the people are virtue, then you're virtuous, then you're expanding virtue through the country's expansion. Um, 
he he wants to throw a bone to Southern people. He knows he's been very critical here, right? So he says, the Southern people are hospitable and noble. They will help to so rid a free country of every vestige of slavery whenever they are assured of their equivalent for their property. The country will be full of money and confidence when the national bank of 20 millions and a state bank in every state with a million or more gives a tone to monetary matters and makes circulating medium as valuable in the purses of the whole community as in the, the coffers of the speculating banker or broker. Um, Joseph, you know, as he puts himself up, you know, he does what many people often do. Uh, and that is, you know, we've had different presidents, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a different kind of president. Um, We've had Democratic presidents, Whig presidents, and pseudo-Democratic Whig presidents, this reference to Tyler. Now's the time to have a president of the United States. And let the whole union, like the inflexible Romans, whenever they find a promise made by a candidate that is not practiced as an officer, hurl the miserable sycophant from his exaltation, as God did Nebuchadnezzar, to crop the grass of the field with a beast's heart among the cattle. Um he goes on to uh, to say as he closes, um, in the United States, the people are the government and their united voice is the only sovereign that should rule, the only power that should be obeyed and the only gentleman that should be honored at home and abroad, on the land and the sea, wherefore were I the president of the United States by the voice of the virtuous people, I would honor the old past of the venerated fathers of freedom. I would walk in the tracks of the illustrious patriots who carried the ark of the government upon their shoulders with an eye single to the glory of the people. And when that people petitioned to abolish slavery in the slave states, I would use all honorable means to have their prayers granted and give liberty to the captive by praying the Southern gentleman a reasonable equivalent for his property, that the whole nation might be free indeed. When the people petitioned for a national bank, I would use my best endeavors to have their prayers answered and establish one on national principles, to save taxes, to make them the controllers of its ways and means. And when the people petitioned to possess the territory of Oregon or any other contiguous territory, I would lend the influence of a chief magistrate to grant so reasonable requests that they might extend the mighty efforts of enterprise and free of a free people from the East to the West sea and make the wilderness blossom as a rose. And when a neighboring realm petitioned to join the union of the sons of Liberty, my voice would be come, come ye come Texas, come Mexico, come Canada, come all the world. Let us be brethren. Let us be one great family. Let there be universal peace. Abolish the cruel custom of prisons, except in certain cases. Abolish penitentiaries and court-martials for desertion, and let reason and friendship reign over the ruins of ignorance and barbarity. I would, as the universal friend of man, open the prisons, open the eyes, open the ears, and open the hearts of all people, to behold and enjoy freedom unadulterated, freedom, and God who once cleansed the violence of the earth with flood, whose son laid down his life for the salvation of all his father gave him out of the world, and who has promised that he will come and purify the world again with fires in the last days, should be supplicated by me for the good of all people. That's how Joseph ends off. Now, we didn't read every part of it. It's obviously very long, and I know we've gone very long. But I think even in this statement of his presidency, you can feel the prophetic mantle 
and, and simply the incorporation of some of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the revelations into what he has to say. And unfortunately, Joseph won't get to carry those out. He never expects to win as president, but he does become the first declared presidential candidate in American history to be assassinated as he is murdered along with Hiram in Carthage jail. Um, that will get very little note in the uh, interests of the world, but millions shall know Brother Joseph again um, when uh, the Savior does come and people realize that he was the prophet God had called to reveal these truths to us. So thanks so much for tolerating our political discussion um, and we will we'll, we'll pick a different topic next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.